Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Richard Hares, Sean McCoy, and David B. Lizelle are authors of a new report from the Transition Accelerator. It's titled, Review of Carbon Dioxide Storage Potential in Western Canada, Blue Hydrogen Roadmap to 2050. In this episode, I'll be speaking to Sean McCoy. He's an assistant professor, Department of Chemical and Petroleum Engineering at the University of Calgary. So welcome to the interview, Sean. Thanks, Markham. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you because CCUS, CCS as it's sometimes referred to, is a big part of Canada and Alberta's uh, uh, climate policy and uh, GHG reduction strategy. It's also relatively uh, controversial, so I think your report is very timely. And I wanted to start kick this conversation off with the question of what is CCUS? Sure. Yeah. So, Markham, CCUS is when we capture carbon dioxide that would otherwise be emitted to the atmosphere and contribute to climate change, right? And we either take that CO2 and try to convert it in something else, that's the U, or we transport it to somewhere where we can inject it deep underground. We can store that CO2 and we keep it away from the atmosphere basically permanently. And that way we're not contributing that CO2 to causing climate change. Now, I understand, I, I interviewed an, an expert from Wood Mackenzie last year, and he pointed out that there are 40 megatons of CCUS capacity in the world. Seven megatons a year of that capacity is in Canada, and, and all, almost all of it in Western Canada. And so there's a lot of expertise ex and experience here, and a couple of really key projects. One of them would be Shell's Quest uh, uh, store uh, CCUS project that's attached to the Scottford uh, refinery and upgrader. Uh, so uh, I guess it's fair to say that Canada, in particular Alberta, is a leader, a global leader in CCUS. So, but the, the technology has also come uh, up against some criticism. I mean, it just I think it was last week the IP uh, Internet and Intergovernmental Panel on, on Climate Change. Uh, said some not very complimentary things about it uh, in a report. So what's your take on that? Is CCUS technically and economically feasible? Yeah, so Markham, as you said, we're doing it, right? We're doing it around the world, as your previous uh, uh, interview said, there are lots of projects that are around the world. So there isn't really a technical question of whether it can be done because we've demonstrated it can happen. What we the the barrier right and the and some of the criticism that CCS uh, has has faced is due to the promises that have been made about how it's going to get rolled out and how it's going to contribute to climate. And I mean, I can give you a really Alberta specific example here, and this is why I think some of the criticism is fair, um, because if we look back to the sort of 2008 2010 provincial roadmap. 
for the province in terms of emissions reductions, which we had, uh, we were talking about CCS playing a really big role. And as you mentioned, we funded projects. The province put a lot of money into a couple. Well, there were additional projects at the time, but what we have is a couple today, uh, CCS projects. And those projects in Alberta are working. But for about a decade, we did nothing other than those two projects. We had a roadmap that said CCS was going to happen, and we didn't do anything. And so to some extent, you know, we are, Alberta is a leader in CCS because we put in investments in place 10 years ago to do this. We've done nothing in that intervening time. So, you know, I think it is a bit fair uh, to criticize CCS because it isn't living up to the promises that have been made. And that's not a fault of the technology. Okay, fair, fair enough. Um... The one of the issues that comes up in CCUS discussions is that it's it's uh, the favorite of the incumbent fossil fuel industry, uh, the oil sands project. They have a pathways initiatives uh, to net zero by 2050, and the C a couple of the CC uh, CEOs, uh, particularly Alex Poorbay from Synovus, uh, are on record in media interviews saying that. You know, uh, three, uh, two, sorry, two thirds of the reduction uh, in oil sands emissions, which is about so two thirds of 70 megatons a year, is going to have to come from CCS and it will cost about $50 billion. And critics look at that and go, well, all we're doing is funding the extension of a legacy industry that is probably going to decline after, you know, 20, after peak oil demand in the early 2030s. And why would we do that? That, that seems like, a, a you know, if we have limited capital and resources, we should be investing it in, in clean energy, in 21st century energy projects, not propping up old legacy industries that are busy, you know, shoveling money out the, the, the door to their uh, shareholders in the forms of uh, higher dividends and share buybacks. It's, it, there's, I, I have to tell you, there's, uh, it's not an uncompelling argument. Yeah, and, and Markham, I, I pretty much would would tend to be very sympathetic to that line, uh, particularly when we see the profitability of uh, the resource companies, the sense operators in Alberta today, to 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 be asking for the public to foot that bill to me is is sort of incredible, frankly. Um, but it isn't cheap, right? That is true. It isn't cheap to do CCS. Um, but I think one of the key points and the reasons that there is a need for strategic investments into CCS, and I, and I think it's very important we talk about what those investments need to be, um, but for strate those invest strategic investments, because CCS has a lot of other applications. So, for example, CCS originally really came out of the idea that we need it for coal-fired power generation. Do we have any in Alberta? Well, not much, and it's shutting down quickly, right? So we've we've seen the competitive landscape shift over time, and we went from sort of this idea, oh, we need to solve it for coal. Now we see a lot of interest in oil and gas, particularly in Alberta. Um, and so I think there's, there is a need there to use that technology to sort of get to two-thirds of, of these emissions. Um, but we also have applications in iron and steel production, right? So if I'm in Ontario, I might be thinking very carefully about this. We also have in cement production. We have operators here in, in, in uh, 
in Alberta, in Edmonton, and in, in uh, sort of near Canmore, who have been thinking about CCS and and how it can help them. And in those cases, right, for we can have a debate about whether how long the market for oil sands uh, bitumen and the petroleum products that come from it are going to be strong and, and peak oil and all these things. But it's very hard to see how we don't use iron and steel or the technologies and disruptive technologies that are come along in iron, steel, or cement that will negate the need for CCS. And then I'd say, finally, the other place we CCS gets need or used is in carbon dioxide removal. And because, as we were talking about earlier, we've delayed action on climate so long, right? We now have, um, we're going to end up rapidly in a situation where we're going to have to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere if we wish to hit some of the targets and, or even just stabilize climate at any temperature really that is uh, you know, safe. And so it has a role there to play as well. So. When we think about that, we need to be strategic about where we're putting money, and it shouldn't just be thrown at this writ large. Well, on that, we agree. Uh, I want to talk about the storage aspect of this, because that's your report uh, really is focused on that. But I have one more question before we, we move on to that topic, and that is the U in CCUS, utilization. Now, China is, I've, I've interviewed uh, analysts about what's going on in China, where they capture the CO2, and then they use it to make all sorts of materials, which then goes into their, their manufacturing uh, processes. In Alberta, we already see Capital Power uh, has announced a CCUS project where they'll make carbon nanotubes, which could go into materials manufacturing. And it seems like when we're talking CCUS, we concentrate on the CCS and not so much on the U, when U is probably and perhaps the biggest opportunity. So is you're more tapped into these conversations amongst policymakers and executives and so on than I am. Is somebody in Alberta talking about you? I think uh, until recently, you was the the topic of interest, it was CCU, right? Um, we had the X Prize. We've had a lot of funding uh, that has been directed towards these utilization options. You know, they are very attractive because they they are a market, right? So all of a sudden, you're taking a waste and you're converting it to to a product, right? And so that's clearly the 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 opportunity there, right? So if you can convert it to nanotubes, if you can convert it to other uh, particularly durable materials, that's really valuable. But there are two hangups here, right? I mentioned durable materials, because if we put them back to say fuel, where a, a chemical that eventually is oxidized or used, that carbon dioxide ends up back in the atmosphere. So we can have reductions in emissions that result from that sort of utilization pathway, but there's a real, um, um, uh, the, the savings is sort of diluted by that re-emission. And um, the other challenge is that with the amount of carbon dioxide we have, as you mentioned, we talked about in the report, and you know it's pretty well known, we've got like 130 million tons of emissions from these large point sources, industrial sources in Alberta. You know, if we were to capture a large fraction of CO2 from these, uh, we would we would basically saturate markets for carbon dioxide pretty quickly, with the exception of fuels. And then we're back to that problem before. So there's very few markets that uh, could absorb the amount of carbon dioxide that we need to be dealing with. So 
utilization has a role to play, I think, but it's always going to have to be uh, coupled with storage. And I think companies are coming around to that realization uh, after they've started looking at this utilization more carefully. Well, let's talk about storage. Uh, now, your uh, report reviews CO2 storage projects in Western Canada, the Western Canadian Sedimentary Basin. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so the objective of this report was not to not to do something completely new, but it was to take a lot of the work that's out there because we've been looking, as we talk about CCS in upper Alberta being a leader in CCS, we've been doing it for a long time, but we've got it in all these reports in different places. Some of them you can't even get. You know, you got to go to someone's bookshelf and ask them to send you a copy. We wanted to pull them all together in one place so that they were reviewed and we had an estimate of, or we, had, we could talk about the ranges of what this story potential was and help inform the policy making process around some of these targets and some of these incentives and things that are going on. Well, what about um, uh, CO2 storage resources? Uh, what can you... Can you give us a sense of the capacity of that? Because uh, I understand that uh, oil and gas reservoirs are, are old ones anyway, depleted ones, are a great resource. There are these large uh, salt caverns uh, that could also be used. What kind of capacity are we talking about? Yeah. So we focus on three different ways to store CO2 uh, in the subsurface. We basically are focusing in this report on saline aquifers. So this is a porous rock that you'd hope to find oil and gas in, but basically it doesn't. And it's basically filled with saline water. Then we have uh, oil and gas reservoirs. So EOR, enhanced oil recovery, where we can uh, put CO2 in, in the process of taking oil out. So it's a bit of an exchange there. And depleted gas reservoirs, where we can just take these basically empty uh, typically under pressured gas uh, reservoirs and refill them with carbon dioxide. So when we looked across all of those, and we just talked about the one type saline aquifers, we have something like a resource of 360 gigatons of carbon dioxide in the ground. And that's across Western Canada and Alberta, it's probably around 80. So, and that's for what we've looked at. We haven't even looked at the whole resource base. That's just a portion of the subsurface. And how big is that? Well, that Western Canadian number is hundreds and hundreds of years of, of CO2 storage capacity. So now we're talking about capacity, which is a little different from that resource. Right. So what, you have the potential and then you mm -hmm. have what the actual that you could uh, employ today. Uh, but that suggests that there is knowledge gaps here. There are uh, opportunity for further research, let's say. What are those knowledge gaps? Yeah, so it, it's really about, it, it, they're not necessarily research, Markham, they're, they're work about going out and, and getting our hands dirty uh, and, and, and developing this resource and starting to turn it into uh, proven capacity. So just like oil and gas, we've got a, a hierarchy here. We're talking about the, the largest number, the sort of ultimate recoverable resource of oil and gas. We need to get down to um, reserves in effect for CO2 storage. So maybe those are things that we're not injecting into today, but they're things where we've delineated that, that resource and we have a really high confidence that if I put a well here or there, and I, maybe I have some wells that I've already drilled, that we can put CO2 in, in the ground very quickly in those locations. So that's the sort of work we have to do to get our hands dirty uh, in the field. 
Um, there is some research and there are some questions that we have. Um, you know, if we do CCS at the scale that we're being that is being talked about, that is hundreds of millions of tons a year in say Western Canada, that's that's a, a lot of fluid being injected into this Western Canadian sedimentary basin. And so we've got some questions about how these things might interact. And we've got questions about how we can plan that out in a sensible way. Um, and those there's some research that that is to be done in that, in that area. But again, it's really about right now getting our hands dirty and finding, delineating this storage capacity. Okay, so I think it's fair to say that um, uh, between the governments and uh, the industry that that work is going to be taking uh, place fairly quickly. That's that's my sense of of what I'm reading and, and the interviews that I'm doing is there's, uh, especially with the federal government's new emission reduction plan, which and the emissions cap uh, that will be applied to oil and gas, there's now a bit of a sense of urgency that there maybe wasn't before. So we can assume that that work, that the getting the hands dirty work is going to be uh, happening fairly soon. But in your report, you suggest strategies for future CCUS deployment. Could you tell us about those, please? Uh, yeah, so, you know, what we're thinking about when we talk about these strategies for deployment is sort of a question of um, who's doing what? Right in the subsurface, who's in charge of of of? Uh, and we don't go into this uh, too much, but we're talking about who is going to be doing the delineation of those resources. And as you say, companies are certainly out there today, but um, where are we going in, in the very long run with this at hundreds of millions of tons a year potentially? Right, and that's tied a lot to this hydrogen economy. So um, we're we're thinking a lot about getting data that's that is uh, making data that is sort of hidden today it's not it's not that it's not accessible but making it really easy to get to on these storage resources so that we can start to plan out how storage is developed in the future right and that planning has to be something which is done hand in hand between government and industry but really getting down to saying how how is this how are we going to build this stuff out over time uh, to hit these big targets well what about i want to talk about the um the uh, subtitle in your report, the Blue Hydrogen Roadmap to 2050. And of course, blue hydrogen is made with steam methane reforming process and natural gas. And then the uh, carbon dioxide that's released has to be captured and, and stored underground. And so blue hydrogen and CCUS go hand in hand. The, the uh, Alberta government has already said that CC, uh, sorry, blue hydrogen will be is a big part of its hydrogen roadmap. Uh, there's, well, they've been criticized because they, they, uh, a lot of emphasis on blue hydrogen, uh, not so much on eventually, uh, transitioning off to green, which is made with electrolyzers and, and, uh, uh clean electricity, but we'll leave that one uh, aside for, for the moment. So blue hydrogen in the next decade or so is going to be Alberta's strategy. How does CCU, CU, CCUS fit into the blue hydrogen roadmap from your point of view? Yeah, well, so it, it it's actually something which is somewhat absent from both the federal and provincial roadmaps, right? It's sort of, if you look at those roadmaps, they talk a lot about having blue hydrogen because we technically know we can do it. That's Shell's doing something which is sort of a, let's call it a dark blue hydrogen, <laughs> if we're going by colors in, in Edmonton, which is something where they don't, they don't get all the CO2 uh, that they could get, but they get a 
pretty decent chunk of it. And if we move to, you know, blue hydrogen in a net zero future, we're going to be doing more capture on those facilities. So there's a lot of discussion about sort of that aspect of it, but there's not this sort of an assumption that we have the CCS, uh, the storage capacity that's available to, to, to enable this roadmap to happen, right? And that's where um, there's a bit of a mismatch, right? If we want to do hundreds of millions of uh, 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 tons of equivalent of CO2, uh, you know, from blue hydrogen in the future, how, how are we setting ourselves up for that, right? And I think right now, I mean, the idea of developing hubs and develop in Alberta, right, and, and getting lots of players together to have these open access resources is, is an approach to doing that. That's good. Um, but again, to, these are huge numbers, right? And it's a real big pivot. And especially if you think about adding CCS to, say, oil sands on top of blue hydrogen, we have to start syncing these things up and figuring out how the, all these parts play together. And if our CCS strategy, which I don't, I haven't seen a CCS strategy for the province since 2010-ish, 12-ish, when we did some work on regulatory frameworks, um, how that CCS strategy is going to link up with what we're talking about, the hydrogen strategy. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, and my take on this, uh, having watched and reported on Alberta energy politics for a long time, is that the current oil and gas companies uh, are they would they would not agree with this characterization, but I think it's fair and that they're basically being dragged kick, dragged kicking and screaming into this. They they have, have dragged their feet uh, for a long time. And now it's the prospect of the uh, emissions cap that has focused their attention. Uh, as Dr. Johnson used to say, the gallows focuses the mind wonderfully well. And I think that's what we've got here. And one of the reasons why uh, I understand that the cost uh, per uh, megaton, uh, metric ton uh, for CCUS is between $50 and, and $100. Well, we now have a $50 a ton uh, carbon price in Canada, but the uh, the tier uh, industrial emitter program in Alberta provides a big discount through the uh, output-based uh, pricing system, probably an 80 or 90%. And what the federal government is saying is either A, we'll put in a cap and trade system, or B, we will, we will uh, use our federal legislation to basically bring the full you know, burden of the, of the carbon price to bear on, on the industry. And, and it seems to me that that is, that that's, what's going to get people moving. That's, what's going to get these kinds of discussions uh, that you're talking about, you know, where we have to sync up the oil sands and, and the blue hydrogen strategy, and then you've got conventional oil and there's all sorts of distant bits and pieces, a lot of moving parts in Alberta in particular that have to be synced up that aren't yet. Uh, and it's going to be that either car carbon pricing one way or another is going to be the lever that gets this thing moving. Is, is that a fair argument to make? Yeah, you know, what's really interesting is, is if we compare ourselves um, uh, with our neighbors south of the border, right? And what's really interesting here is, is, is uh, you know, we'll limit our discussion to carbon pricing, right? But, but the U.S. hasn't had nationally, right, any sort of real consistent coherent climate policy. 
for a long time, right? 2010 was the last time, you know, Waxman Markey, I think at that time was, was the attempt to put in uh, nationwide carbon pricing. And so you've got regions which do things, but no real consistent carbon policy. What's very interesting is that through, they, they've taken the approach in, in the recent um, bill that uh, that's being put together, you know, of, of offering incentives to do things. And so it's interesting, you know, we can argue about whether those incentives are targeted in the right way at the right things, but those incentives have been very successful in getting CCS to, to get moving. And it's also in, been rather successful because they have a little bit, I mean, they don't have a particularly well-organized um, uh, way of managing the subsurface, right? It's, it's, it's privately owned, right? It's, 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 uh, you know, there will be blood sort of, sort of, sort of thing here. And so the, uh, that has meant that there's been, I think, some more innovation in different applications in different ways CCS might be deployed. They don't have very much CCS, but, but there's been some innovation that we haven't seen here because we've seen a lot of, if you will, the oxygen being sucked out of the room by this sort of debate about oil sands, cap and trade, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, limits, uh, caps on, on emissions, uh, uh, things that, that are different. And so it's interesting to see that we're also bringing in incentives here, right? We do have a tax credit, which is emerging. And I'm interested to see if sort of this combination of, of both tax credits and sort of the, the 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 carrot and the stick, if you will, of the cap and the pricing really can help us move faster. But Markham, I think you're absolutely right in that our price isn't there right now, right? To get companies to, to be investing in this. And, you know, I, it'd be interesting to see if baselines start to become adjusted for things that have CCS in them. Because all of a sudden, if you could, if you could produce Pick your product in Alberta with CCS. Does that make it the best performing facility? And then, of course, we've had changes in other things that happen to your but could be interesting to see that combination. Well, I want to wrap up our conversation, Sean, by referencing an interview I did with Danny Cullenward, who's a, an economist, uh, who's a professor at Stanford, uh, Stanford, and he wrote a book with uh, one of his colleagues and basically argued that the uh, uh, carbon pricing alone doesn't get you where you need to go. You need a combination of, you need to combine it with industrial policy. And it seems then that Canada, if we're going to take, uh, if we're going to apply carbon pricing uh, to get CCUS going and, and uh, implement uh, this emissions uh, cap on oil and gas, then combining that with incentives. So you get the, you get the stick. Now you're going to add some carrots seems to be uh exactly what Cullen, Cullenward is arguing for. It's kind of an industrial policy combined with carbon pricing. And that, that you know, uh, I think uh, uh, in the real world, that's what basically has reduced emissions where it's been applied. Uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, so I, I agree. I think what we've seen is that it isn't, it can't just be strictly carbon pricing. I think we have to be thoughtful about how we use carbon pricing. There is a role for it. Absolutely. Um, but there is a need at the current time to kind of kick us off the the, the, the trajectory we're on with all the momentum and inertia we have into this sort of low carbon trajectory. And to make that sort of that kick to get us going, I think there's other things that are needed, targeted policies and incentives and, and things that really address the barriers in individual applications and sectors, particularly for CCS. Well, Sean, thank you very much for this. Really appreciate your insights. 
Thanks. I'm really happy to have uh, had the chance to talk to you.